Turn your Bibles to page 519 if you're grabbing a pew Bible, or Psalm 131 if you like to do the hard work of looking it up. Turn your Bible to the middle, let it fall open. You'll probably land pretty close. But let's just start here. We love noise, don't we? When was the last time that you tried to sleep with utter quiet? There's probably a few people in here who like it totally quiet. I'm not one of them. I think I've got the fan on high. I've got like some noise that's kind of going in the background, right? We love distraction of multiple points of focus, especially if we can come at the multiple points of focus that are on me. We really like that. And so it's kind of interesting because a recent survey done by a work group was trying to discover the, the impact of distraction, especially in the workplace. I think this kind of holds true as well for students in school, uh, for kids at home, whatever it may be. But listen to some of these statistics. 69% of those surveyed say that checking their device, meaning their phone, interferes with their concentration. Duh. Okay. 46% say distraction makes them feel elated, while 41% say it stresses them out. So we do what's actually bad for us. And then 58% said they don't need social media to do their jobs, but they still can't make it through the day without it. Overall, 62% of those surveyed spend one to two hours of the working day doing the, I'm just checking, you know, fill in the blank, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, TikTok, for a minute. I'm just checking for a minute. What's funny is how long it takes for people to recover. After a distraction, workers report somewhere between 5 and 30 minutes it takes them to get back on, uh, you know what I'm talking about, get in the zone or get in the groove or kind of get back to it. Think how much productivity is lost just because we like a good distraction. John Mark Comer says it this way, that the noise of the modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God. Drowning out the one input we most need. How do we have any kind of spiritual life at all if we can't pay attention any longer than a goldfish? How do you pray? How do you read the scriptures? How do you sit under teaching at church or rest well on the Sabbath when every chance you get, you reach for the dopamine dispenser that is your phone? To live a quiet life, I love this, in a world of noise is a fight a war of attrition, a calm rebellion against the status quo. See, today we're going to be in Psalm 131, which looks at the motives behind these distractions. It looks at the ultimate downfall of hoping in self, and then it beautifully offers hope in God that leads to contentment. And if there's anything you're walking away with today, it's real short that I want us to get. It's just that contentment comes through abiding, not achieving. That's it. Contentment comes through abiding, not achieving. Now, because it's only three verses, and I know you have it in you, please stand to your feet while we honor the word of the Lord and we read it out loud. It's going to be up on the screen. Um, so if you're comfortable, let's just read it together and fumble through it, okay? O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. You may have a seat. So this is what's called a, a psalm of ascents, and um, not like a psalm of stinkiness, but a psalm of like climbing, okay? And so picture it this way, Jerusalem's kind of up on a hill, and there's all these annual festivals, and then hordes of Israelites would come to celebrate these festivals, and as they're climbing the hill, as they're ascending, they are singing these songs. You know, there's just like songs that define and this songs that kind of define. But it's interesting because it starts from a first-person perspective and then moves to a communal understanding. So just dream with me, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to be calm, quiet individuals, and then a calm and quiet congregation? What sort of peace, what sort of stability, what sort of might would we have as Christians if that's who we were? So these psalms, to the extent that they're believed and provisionally, they become the mantra or the marker of a community. It's just food for thought. Three things he says here when he talks about hope and self under Psalm 131, verse 1, is he talks about the heart, the eyes, and the mind. He says, my heart is not lifted up. And the basic essence there is just pride. That's just it. That's all he's talking about is pride. John Calvin once said this regarding pride. He said, in this psalm, he said, he denies, meaning David, he denies that his heart had been lifted up, for this is the truth of all unwarranted rashness and presumption in conduct. Like, oh, those are big words. What's it mean? It means all the stupid things we do <laughs> come out of a raised up heart. All the ways we try to self-promote, all the ways that we try to get you to think that I'm awesome, all the ways that we try to put our one foot ahead come because we've raised up our heart. We've not trusted in the one who raises us up. You see, a lifted heart says, I'm pretty amazing. Maybe you'd never say it out loud, but maybe in the quietness of your heart, you might say that. You might think you're really good at something. And that might be the word used. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at this. I'm pretty amazing. And what's more, the lifted heart seeks to convince others. My heart is not lifted up, David says. Do you think David had uh, perhaps the reason, a few reasons to say his heart could be lifted up? A terrifically gifted musician, a phenomenal military leader, one who had the gifts of the Lord in spades. If there was anybody who could like, you know, lift up his heart, perhaps David could. But David says, no, I, I, I'm not going to lift up my heart. The reason I titled the message, The Journey of Con, because I would just say this. Do you think David got this right all the time? No. 
You think I get this right all the time? Not even close. Psalm 138 verse 6 says this, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. Those who think they're wonderful, he knows from a distance. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. How can you be simultaneously high and lifted up and low and accessible? It's only God. And that's the only solution to our pride. Then he says another thing where he says, my eyes are not raised too high in the second part of Psalm 131.1. You see, raised eyes, if you're following the logic of the psalm, say, I'm pretty amazing, my heart's lifted up, and you could use my help. Because my eyes are looking out toward other people and how they can actually benefit from me. And so he's saying, my eyes are not raised high. Or maybe a better way to say it is, is your eyes are looking down on others. I've arrived, you haven't. Let me give you a hand. I'm sure you need me. It's pretty interesting because if you compare that with the use of someone looking up with their eyes, with Psalm 121, you get this. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And then he goes on to talk about the care and keeping of the Lord. And he's looking up. You see, the interesting thing about someone with eyes that are not raised too high is it's just arrogance. So you say, well, Doug, arrogance is just pride. Uh, it's like... Uh, it's, it's pride displayed in this way of, of arrival and usefulness that I have for everybody else's problems. It's a little bit of this like switching of positions. In Psalm 121, the psalmist is looking up saying, I need your help. I've got no hope but you. In Psalm 131, David is saying, my eyes are not raised high. It means I haven't put myself in your position, God, and said, look, you need me. Pretty Pretty interesting. Just the shift that happens there. And I want to kind of settle into this piece, this piece of like pride is not just the, the, the athlete who thinks he's awesome and he's dancing in front of the, the camera after he scores a touchdown trying to draw all sorts of attention to himself. Pride is also the one who, who thinks that they have done all those things and arrived at a place of strength and instead are telling people to come follow after them. So he looks at the heart with pride. He looks at the eyes with arrogance. And then he turns to the mind where he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, we don't really stuff like that. In fact, um, ambition is what's led to some of the greater discoveries that we have. I mean, you could look at like even the discovery of like penicillin or various medical discoveries that we've seen or technological discoveries that we've seen, they've come from a person who had an ambition, who said, I want to set out to do something great. I want to accomplish something. I want to do something. And so they have ambition to do those things, and it's not bad. 
But I think what David is saying is um, in the right time. You see, the occupied mind that David is talking about in Psalm 131 is just this, waiting on God. How many of you would say that? In, In your heart of hearts right now, how many of you would say, I don't like waiting. And God, what you're doing, like, I need the roadmap now. I need to know what the plan and purpose is here. You see, while it's not sinful to ask God why or what's next, that's actually doubt. Doubt's a good thing. We look at doubt sometimes as the enemy, and we're like, oh man, I don't know if I can doubt. Yeah, you can. (laughs) Like Jesus went to the garden doubting. He went to the garden asking the Lord if there was a different way. Like, oh, this is a hard thing to do, but committed to be faithful to the process of what God asked him. So doubt's not the enemy here. You see, what David says is he refuses to demand an answer, which is what Calvin was talking about earlier. The presumption and the rashness of conduct, the dumb things we do, is because we we say, God, you owe me an answer. Watch some television this afternoon. It's probably the only time you're going to hear me say that. But like, watch some television this afternoon and watch how many ads have the phrase, you deserve or you owe it. And, and then you start to get a picture of why David says, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Why? Because it's the place of entitlement that says you owe me. If God owed us anything, it's not that. Let me tell you. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the author says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. David is saying this, I will follow you as far as your revelation. I'm not going to go beyond that. And there's a caution in that for us in order for us to be content. Discovery of contentment is not like some treasure that you're going to find a map for and unlock. It's about understanding the heart of a person for you. It's about understanding the heart of Christ for you. You see, the picture that we see here overall in verse 1 is of a proud person. And a proud person looks and they compare and they compete. And guess what? They're never satisfied. So here's the question then. Have you known, or maybe you've been, someone who has thought much of themselves, little of others, and has God figured out in the process? Is that you? I know I've been there many times. I can drift right into that category. So truth to life, just answer this simple question. How has pride, arrogance, or ambition made abiding in Christ difficult for you? How has it made it difficult for us? 
as a church. There are things we want to accomplish as a community. There are things that we want to do. Are those things, you've heard the phrase, best laid plans, right? Yeah, well, best laid plans are the ones that are laid at Jesus' feet. (laughs) I don't know how else to say that. Blaise Pascal, the uh, scientist and theologian from the 1600s, said this. I found it compelling. All unhappiness of men arises from one single fact. They cannot stay quietly in their own room. Have you ever thought if I sit too long, the world's going to pass me by? If I sit too long, I'm just going to miss something? So David has really outlined for us here, okay, what's the, what's the, the process? Well, I have pride and arrogance and ambition, and now I've learned it kills my ability to abide. And I've given you some passages there. I don't know if they're actually in the notes in the bulletin or not, but those passages will help you in terms of uh, taking a step out ahead of the Lord and then missing this actual Uh, abiding relationship where you can be content. So hope in self is tragically flawed and completely valueless. It will take you nowhere and get you nothing. And it'll promise everything with a grand journey along the way. But what about hope in God? What about that? What's that look like? Because verses two and three say, but, just pauses, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Consider David. A million things clamoring for his attention. Most of us, if we're laying in bed in the morning and and we're awake, some of us are making lists and it's already like, Roman numerals and like it looks nice, right? Not this guy, okay? But we are thinking about what we have coming that day. And the motor starts running. And it starts running and it starts running. Sometimes it controls you. But David is saying this. The man who had an entire military behind him, an entire nation that he's leading, all sort came from his past, creeping up and accusing everything. David's like, but I have calmed and I have quieted my soul. You see, a calmed and quiet soul is like a weaned child that wants nothing from its mother but just her presence. Let that sit for just a moment. What do you most want from God? What do you most want from him? What do you most go after? What is that thing that you're like, just, I need an answer. I need healing. I need whatever. You need finances. I need a job. I need a wife. I need, I don't know. And we demand those answers as though God is unkind to give them. And David's saying, look, my soul, I've calmed it, I've quieted it, and now, guess what? I'm like a weaned child. All I want to do is just lay down on my mother's chest, and that's it. I mean, think about even the imagery there. That even the breathing becomes rhythmic between the two. 
and there's just like arms of the child fall limp, right? We don't like these tender images of God sometimes. They're a little bit like too close. But isn't that what he wants for us? Like if we want a relationship that's dynamic and always growing toward him, we have to understand what calmed and quieted means. You see in Psalm 1611, the psalmist says that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are treasures forevermore. Read the beginning of the psalm. It's like a dumpster fire that's happening. And then he's saying, look, in your presence there is fullness of joy. You're like, but your life stinks. That's fine. I've got God. What's your coping mechanism? That's what David's saying. And so he says, I've calmed and I've quieted my heart. You see, to calm the heart, Hebrew word there means to compose one's disposition. It means like making something smooth. Like what's that really mean? It means sanctification. It means how do I grow in godliness? How do I grow in greater obedience to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Well, guess what? That, that's where you guys come in. That's where my family comes in. That's where anybody around me who loves the Lord comes in. Calming my soul is a little bit like saying, is there a rough edge in me that's making it hard for this water to flow smoothly? Yes? Okay. What is it? I don't want a rough edge. What is it? And then he says, I've quieted my soul. And this actually means like, it's in the active sense, which means David is saying, I have quieted, meaning um, I am actively quieting. I'm actively doing this. It's an ongoing, present, active participle, if you wanted to know. And he's, he's trying to help us understand what the action is. The action is reducing to silence. Remember the quote from the beginning? In the modern world, all the things clamoring for our attention keep us at this position where we just don't hear the voice of God. Why? Because I'd rather have a thousand discussion, or distractions. I'd rather pick up my phone and look at the news feed, what somebody liked on Facebook. I'd rather see what somebody posted on Virage Sale. I'd rather, and you start moving in those directions. And he's saying, I've quieted my soul. It's actually the word quieted is, is the word that we have... Uh, we get our root word for um, the individual who is uh, the technical term for dumb, like can't speak. Like they've brought themselves to a place of silence. They cannot speak. Have you ever thought of yourself like that in the presence of the Lord? That just even being in his presence is like, that's just enough. I don't need to speak. I just want to be. That's what David is saying. One minister says it this way, and this was particularly challenging for me. So if you're somebody who leads a ministry, think of this. Ministers are tempted to join the ranks of those who consider it their primary task to keep other people busy. But our task is the opposite of distraction. How to keep them from being so busy that they can no longer hear the voice of God who speaks in silence. So what are we doing as a church? What am I doing as an individual? What am I doing as, an, as a ministry leader that is actually impeding or stopping your ability to hear the voice of God because you just can't be still? 
There's a reason why the psalmist says in Psalm 46.10, be still. And he doesn't say be frenzied and active, be the greatest servant of all time, be the rock star Sunday school teacher or pastor, or, and then you'll know that I'm God. No, he says be still. So then David, having communicated all these things, moves to this idea of hope in the Lord. He says, O Israel, he said, this is a truth I've discovered for myself. Like, I, I'm not proud. My, my eyes aren't looking around at how everybody else needs me. I don't, I don't have this ambition that is like driven internally by this need. And, and, and so now like I've, I'm calmed and I've quieted my soul. And, and I'm like a weaned child. All I want is just the presence of the Lord. And, and it's just one big exhale. <sighs> Israel. Those around me, my community, the people around me. Look, I want to tell you something. Hope in God both now and forevermore. And you're like, well, what does that really mean? What is he really saying? When he says, this time forth and forevermore. Present trust is not just this moment. But it's a deep belief that your past was also dealt a decisive blow by the work of Christ on the cross. And that leads to your future hope. So when he says, this time forth and forevermore, I want you to read it this way. And think of it this way. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 8. He says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Most of us are like, yes, that's awesome. Like a long time ago when I was at enmity with God, he was for me. And then he says this, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So he's moving ahead to the tense of the salvation that God offered through Christ. He's moving ahead to this place where he's saying, now, not like then when you were my enemy, but like now when you feel stuck, when this sin still has your heel, when this doubt is still controlling, now is when I died for you. You're like, oh. So it's like past, present, and future. And then David says, yes, now what I want you to do is trust in the Lord both now from this time forth and forevermore. You see that concept in Romans chapter 5 verses 8 through 11 probably three times where I, I call it the nowness of our salvation where God is like, what are you struggling with now? The thing that when you were my enemy, I died for to remind you now that I'm still for you. Remember our survey at the beginning? Some of the solutions that were offered in the survey were, you know, give me more remote work options. Give me a designated quiet space at work where there's no distractions. Help me turn off my phone. Reduce meetings, but they all miss the mark. Except for reducing meetings. They all miss the mark. Because we're frenzied. There's something we're searching for. There's something that we so deeply long for, that we so deeply want. I would just say it this way. When David says, this time forth and forevermore, knowing that my past has been dealt a decisive blow by the cross of Christ, 
I heard one author say it this way, letting ourselves be loved by God is more important than loving God. Think about that. The fact that God would express his love toward you in Christ, you have to receive it. You have to let it happen. That's hard to do when we're busy. Can hard to gain when you're striving for a thousand things. So this week, from a truth to life perspective, try incorporating this. Try incorporating the practice of just quiet. 15 minutes or more if you have the time. No phone. No distractions. Just your scripture, something to write with, and yourself. And dare I say it, just let yourself be loved by God. That's really hard to just do. To just take a step back and not perform for him, not do something that earns something, but just be. Brennan Manning says it this way, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. And the question then becomes, is this simple truth enough for you to sustain and to propel and to fill you with all that you need? Is it enough? Because that's the essence of abiding. And contentment through abiding, not achieving. So I'm going to pray for us and the worship team is going to come back up and they're going to sing one final song as we release. And um, I'll be waiting if anybody wants to pray and so will the elders as well, elder in the office as well. So Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the fact that we can abide in you, trust in you, know you and your heart is for us in the now, in the struggles that we have. We love you and it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.